0: High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaac1.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on Hytruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for an educational episode. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. Education happens at school. But what else is happening at school? Let's read some headlines. November 29, 2022, an art teacher in New Jersey was arrested after overdosing on fentanyl in front of his middle school class. Boy, that would give me nightmares as a kid, having a teacher almost die in front of me. Police arrived and saved the teacher, who is now under arrest. December 8, 2022, three middle school kids from Moreno Valley in California were taken to the hospital after a drug ingestion. People were so relieved to hear the kids used marijuana gummies instead of fentanyl. But these kids were poisoned at school. That's not okay. December 15, 2022, a mom filed a lawsuit against the Los Angeles Unified School District when her 15-year-old daughter was found dead in the school bathroom from an overdose. She was missing from class and her absence was unaccounted for until her body was found. So sad. January 11th, 2023, Westchester County High School, New York. A kid collapses after smoking what he thought was weed through a vape pen. He thought it was marijuana, but it was fentanyl. And the school nurse revived him with naloxone. I treated several people who overdose on fentanyl, but swear they only took marijuana. I believe their bong or smoking device had fentanyl residue, very highly concentrated drug that can cause an overdose. In any case, what are all these drugs doing at school? Vaping, marijuana, fentanyl. We've been worried about school shootings and safe spaces. Shouldn't kids be safe from drugs at school? So what's the solution? In January 2023, California Governor Newsom pledged to provide naloxone, the opioid reversal drug, to every middle and high school in California. That's one solution, a very downstream approach to saving dying people. It seems strange to me to demand naloxone at school without anything about drug education and primary prevention of drugs. That's like providing a bucket to catch water from a broken roof without fixing the roof and letting the leak grow. What about the upstream solution in prevention? And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, Hi Truths and Dr. Lev. Thank you for all the prevention work that you do in our communities. My name is Sal Garcia, and I coordinate the Friday Night Live Prevention Program in San Diego County. I was in the same prevention program as the young person I lead today. I think positive youth development and youth leadership can be very meaningful in a young person's life. With the increase of near-deadly or deadly incidents in our communities, my question is whether there is a role for drug testing in schools, especially since some school staff now carry naloxone. Thank you. Thank you, Sal, for your interesting question and your important and impactful work in youth prevention. You are living proof of how prevention programs work and inspire. And to answer your question, I invited an expert who does drug testing to students at schools. Let's learn more from Angie Ferguson. Angie made it her mission to protect the futures of teens and young adults from drugs and alcohol devastation. She is the executive director of Drug Free Clubs of America since 2012. She's worked with over 100 communities to combat substance-based threats to adolescents, and the methods used by drug-free clubs has been independently validated and shown to have positive outcomes. To learn more about Angie Ferguson and Drug-Free Clubs of America, check out the High Truth show notes. Angie Ferguson, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited for our conversation, um, but I want our audience to get to know you a little bit and... Tell us, why work with youth and drugs? Why is that so important to you?
1: You know, I kind of fell into it like a lot of people that are in nonprofit work. It seems like not a lot of people start off in their careers fresh out of high school and college and say, I'm going to do nonprofit work. So it's something that happens over time. But in my case, my father was one of the first responders, one of the firefighters who came up with the concept of drug-free clubs just based on the devastation that he witnessed every day and that I grew up listening to. So once I heard the concept of the program, I was immediately hooked at what a difference it could make. So um, I spent the last 17 years building the program and I took it over about 10 years ago and um, just decided that about seven or eight years ago that I should do a degree in public administration. And really that's where my drive for the formal training as well as just the sidebar research came from is just seeing the program work and wanting to make it better.
0: And, and how has the work affected you, your family, community?
1: Well, my I have two teenage daughters, so you can imagine how having a mom that does drug prevention probably wove its way into their worlds <laughs> over time. Um, my oldest is a, a sophomore in college now, and my youngest is about to go into her freshman year in high school. So these are pivotal ages that I am so grateful that through this work, I've had the opportunity to get to know more about those really formative years and what you actually can do to make a difference. So even within my own friend group, I talked to so many of my friends that feel like their their kids aren't listening anymore. They can't really, what good can I do? You know, they know everything. They're not listening to me. So it's so nice to be able to have a knowledge background that I can help them navigate that parent-child dialogue a little bit, at least on this topic. Um, But really within my community, when I think of my community, as far as drug-free clubs goes, we're spread throughout three different states. And when I see this program take hold in a new community, you can just witness businesses coming together, schools coming together, kids coming together. So it's so inspirational when you actually see it work.
0: Wow. So Let's start with a question from Sal Garcia. Sal uh, uh, has the Friday Night Live. It's a uh, prevention uh, program in San Diego. And he asks, what is the role for drug testing at schools?
1: Interestingly, drug testing has had a bit of an evolution over time. So when you think about drug testing traditionally, you think about the way it was originally used, which was more heavy-handed, usually had some punitive measures associated with it. It was not voluntary. Pretty much students were forced to be subjected to drug testing at the whim of administration. We basically took the tool of drug testing because of its effectiveness when a student is asked to do something when they're in a high-pressure situation that tool can be very effective for the teenager to be able to say, I can't because I get tested. So we held on to that piece of it, but took away the heavy handedness, the mandatory, the punitive measures, and sort of reimagined drug testing as a voluntary strategy, as something that a student led, and as something that ultimately the students want to do instead of the boss telling them that they have to do it so there has been some research with drug testing over the years where I, I believe it was federal level research where it was discovered that drug testing does not seem to be effective once the threat of the test is gone but that's under the old regime under the mandatory heavy-handed punitive side What we do is build a belief set in staying drug-free, and we allow the student to have control over if they're going to do it. So over time, they like that they are in the program, that they are getting rewarded and positive reinforcement. So it's a very different thing than the way drug testing originally started.
0: We know that drug testing is a deterrent. And as a prevention tool, right? Not just for kids, but for adults. I say, you know, I'm a federal employee; I can't do that. You know, or I'm, you know, um, uh, I'm in the military; I can't do that. As we, we know, in certain workforces, that's it. And for, uh, as you mentioned, for um, some kids at school, that could be used in a similar way. And you're bringing um, a positive aspect to that. Tell us about drug-free clubs. What what is that? Well, when I was
1: growing up, I was not involved in a lot of clubs and programs and stuff at school um, other than volleyball and some of those kinds of things. But I think the reason for that is because I didn't actually feel like what my school had was making a difference to the students that need it or to the ones that might be on the fringe or might be on the fence about if they might use or they might not use. So I wasn't involved in a program like drug-free clubs when I was growing up. So it was surprising to me when my dad and the other firefighter in the firehouse here in Cincinnati, Ohio, when they told me about the strategy, I was surprised at how it gripped my heart a little bit because I've got friends that I know this would have worked for them when we were in high school, that they sort of went the other direction. And I know of many individuals that it works for now because the test itself, yes, it is a deterrent, but I would say that the process of testing makes it visible to the other students who is drug-free. So just by the nature of showing up for testing, by eating your reward in biology class in front of the other students, the other students can see who's drug free. And in that way, you can form your friend groups based on who is sharing that belief set with you. So really the behavioral science behind the strategy is something we lucked out with. We've had researchers validate that what we do is rooted in behavioral science that's well-researched and well-established. So if I were to think about drug-free clubs as a, as a strategy, I'd say it was born out of necessity. It's been perfected over time and proven after 15, 17 years
0: of improving
1: that program.
0: So how does it work? Does it, a school come to you and say, hey, we want to start a drug-free club? Um, parents come up with that? Or how, how does that work?
1: It can come from many different directions. Sometimes it's a student who hears about it from another student who is an officer in our school, or if they are out in their community and they see our stickers on the doors of businesses where it says drug-free clubs, students rewarded here. So if, if one group is getting um, here in Cincinnati, we love our our chili, right? So if, if one student is getting buy a Coney, get a Coney free, The other student wants that. So that's a way that we take peer pressure and we make it work for us. Instead of a negative force, we employ it as a positive force. So essentially, it can be a superintendent. It can be a principal. It can be a parent. Anybody can bring it to the awareness of the administration, But at the end of the day, it has to be something the administration is behind. They have to approve it because it operates within their four walls. And there's a huge difference when administration is very enthusiastic about the approach or when they just kind of let it exist. So we want to make sure when we open a program that at the end of the day, the principal and or the superintendent are very excited about it. From there, the first thing that happens is that student officers are appointed by the leader of the program inside of that school, and then the students really take it over. They decide how are they going to spread the word about the program to the rest of the students, what are the rewards going to be on a weekly, monthly basis inside of the school, and what businesses would would we like to engage in the community who will also reward students who choose to be in the club and by design are then being drug tested in order to be active members. So it really kind of pulls everybody together, but it's led by the students with the sort of blessing of administration.
0: So when you come to a school that has it, it's not like all the kids in the school are getting drug tested, right? You said it's voluntary, but what percentage of the kids join such a club?
1: So our average is 23%, but I would say that that is not reflective of a lot of our schools. So when we take our average, we have to consider our brand new schools that have just launched. We've got schools from 100 students to schools that have 2,300 students. So the percentages are very skewed. I would say probably the schools that are the most effective are the ones that Usually we have the most success in like a medium sized school where we can really spread the word pretty fast, small to medium, but the large schools do a good job too. It just takes a little bit more to spread the word, but we've got schools that are in the 70 and 80 percentile. And I think this year out of our 61 schools, I think we've got right around 20 that are over 50% participation, meaning you're in the minority if you're not in drug-free clubs. So that really changes the dynamic in a social situation.
0: Right. And what kind of kids join a club? Um, You know, there's always, uh, you know, the athletes, the nerds, the, the, uh, you know, people who Uh, Are new to the community? Like, who, what kind of kids join, or is there such a labeling?
1: Well, I think the immediate reaction is that the only type of student that would join a program like this is the type of student that doesn't need it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we get a lot of times when we're talking to new communities or new schools is how are you reaching the students that actually need this? And that is. A huge part of why the student leadership is so important. Because when we have our schools select their student leaders, we do not encourage them to all get the same type of student. Get the student who doesn't lead every other club in the school, who would love to have something on their resume that maybe they're not an athlete and maybe they're not the most academic student, but there are natural leaders in the student body that don't shine on paper. So engage them get the theater student, get the just the funny kid who might get in a little bit of trouble. (laughs) So we do encourage our officers to be very diverse in that way. From there, really what's interesting is because the program is pretty passive, we're talking about the activities that it takes to run a program. But if you think about it from a student's perspective, I choose to join. I go down for drug testing on initiation day and drug testing day is fun. There's music and you would never think so ever. Nobody believes me when I tell them that (laughs) there's music teachers write post-it notes and put them up on the walls. Like we're so proud of you. Great job. Keep it up. Some schools put balloons around the doorways to the bathrooms. It's just, it's crazy the way that some schools go all out. A lot of schools will do like a food truck day and things like that at the same time. So they make it very fun. So there's that one day. And then after that, it's a belonging. We don't require ongoing meetings. We don't require the strength of character to like make posters and hold them up and say, I'm drug free. And, you know, go to the local gas station and put stickers on the beer boxes. And we don't require any of that. If schools want to do it, they can. But in that way, We do reach a different type of student because it enables them to belong without having to be so outward about it because the rewards, when they redeem the rewards, that just eating that cookie is a symbol that I'm drug free. So I don't have to shout from the hills. And so you can get the more passive student who may love the idea of having the drug test to fall back on to escape a high pressure situation without Losing cool points, so to speak,
0: and so the cookie. That's always about, our theory. Yeah, I know. To uh, for our audience, the cookie is one of the incentives, right? That at the at lunch, uh, people who belong to a drug free club and they have a little um, membership card, they're able to get uh, an extra cookie at lunchtime. You know, as simple as that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely um, the school. The one school that does it in particular, it's a separate line, and those students. The schools don't get our drug test results. It's just between us and parents. So in order for the school to know who's in the program, the kids have to have their ID card. And we also have a mobile app where they can pull up their digital ID card. So they just show that and that makes them eligible for, it's like a big chocolate chip cookie that the lunch ladies cook early in the day. So it's interesting because we always could sense that We were capturing students that other prevention programs were not just by the sheer numbers. Because if you think about other prevention programs, even on our average of 23%, they don't have 23% participation in those groups. You know, they're usually much, much smaller. And so, especially for a year-long commitment that requires a fee up front. So those are some roadblocks. But we had independent researchers evaluate our program and what they discovered was in the first year that a school has drug-free clubs, around 58% of those students reported that they actually used, they relied on one of the strategies of drug-free clubs to stay drug-free. And then over the course of the first five years, that consistently goes up from 58, it goes up to by year five, it was 69% of the students say, yep, I used it. I had to use a strategy from drug-free clubs to stay drug-free. That was 2014 to 2019. And then last year that number jumped to 75%. So what that tells me is that three out of four of our students have had an offer in the last 12 months. They wouldn't be able to say, I relied on it to stay drug-free if they weren't in a situation where they also could have chosen not to stay drug-free. So they had the chance to go one way or the other and used our strategy. So that one thing from the researchers tells me we absolutely are engaging the students who are getting offers and they could go either
0: way. And when you say use our strategies, do you mean being able for a kid to say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't use that. I'm part of this club. Is is that what you mean? To be one of them. Um, that's the most obvious
1: one. Um, it could be something where they were in a scenario where student, we've had a student tell us this. They were in a situation where people who used to pressure them to use see them getting rewarded, they see them go through the cookie line, they see them go to the front of the lunch line on chicken nugget day, or get up to get their car out of the parking lot five minutes early at the end of the day. All of these are visible cues that I'm drug-free. So people around them that used to pressure them just don't even ask anymore. So if even if they do, they say, oh, you know I'm in drug-free clubs, and they're out of it. We also have an education component. So some of it could be just using some of the knowledge that has come from the information that we give to parents and to students and to teachers as well as to the community businesses that support our kids through rewards so it could be knowledge from one of those education pieces or lastly another whole component of the program is to build the parent-child dialogue to have them continue to have conversations And perhaps there was something that was said in one of those conversations that gave them that extra oomph to decide in that pivotal moment to stay drug-free. So that's why we asked specifically, or I guess less specifically, did you rely on any tactics from drug-free clubs to stay drug-free? Not just, did you use the drug test excuse?
0: Nice. And I like about your program is that you engage parents. I don't know any other I mean, there may be something out there, but that engages parents. Parents regularly, um, first of all, they have to sign up and pay for the kids to be in such a program. So they know that right away. And then you, you send them regular communications and educations in email to keep uh, parents engaged. And then of course, the kid, parents get their the test results. Yes.
1: yes. So there's really three different layers to the parent engagement piece. And one is just having them sign up in the first place they it's a medical procedure so they have to consent to the test the student has to consent to the test and then they also have to consent the student has to consent to the re- results to be released to drug-free clubs of America and to their parents so that's regardless of the age of the student so really
0: that and sign the up time and, and the teachers i mean the, the school and the teachers don't have these they don't get this
1: They do not. We have one pilot school where their personal counselor formerly was a substance use disorder counselor. So in that school, um, that's the only one where he gets our drug test results and, and they sign off. It's a private school. They sign off on it ahead of time. It's a completely different scenario. Every one of our other 60 schools, everything is voluntary. So our standard model is it's completely voluntary and not released to the school. It's just between us and parents. So, there's the sign up process that really sparks that first conversation. Do you want to do this? Why not? Why? Who else is doing it? That kind of thing. Then we have the ongoing education that I told you about, just the information that goes out to parents about is vaping actually safer? What are the real risks with smoking marijuana or edibles or things like that? And then the third piece is resources for the parents when we do get a positive screen we have somebody that they can talk to not for counseling necessarily but just to get advice like on when my student comes home how do i have this conversation i never expected my test would be positive what are some resources in my community that i might need so um we prompt the ongoing dialogue On drug test day, for example, when a student comes down to the testing area, they sit down at the computer and enter their contact information in. At that moment, an email goes to the parent that says, your child's being tested right now for drug-free clubs. Talk to them tonight about this. And so I feel like even initiatives that exist to engage parents in other programs, it's hard to get the parents to show up. You hear that all the time about schools that have speakers lined up and they might even incentivize parents to show up and listen to them and they just can't get them to come. It's a tough topic to show up for because parents feel like if I even go, I'm admitting there's a problem that I'm concerned about. So that is a hurdle that when we were designing our parent program, we had to think about going to where they are instead of requiring them to come to us. So we prompt those key moments to have a dialogue. We don't just say, talk to your student about drugs. We say, today's the day, this is how you open the conversation. Tell them you're proud of them. Don't make any excuses, it's important. You cut the risk of using it in half if you do it. So we give them specific moments to be active in that.
0: Interesting. What I like is that you promote the social norms, uh, Kids, Most kids don't use drugs, even though we hear about it and read about it all the time. The majority uh, don't use drugs, so you're promoting those social norms, and you're also promoting prevention science. And uh, we've talked before. You told me about the theory of planned behavior. Tell us about that. So that was
1: part of our deep dive into why is it that we are seeing consistent success regardless of the community type and we're in Ohio so in Ohio you've got some cities you've got some rural areas you've got some Appalachian areas and throughout those different demographics we've got affluence we've got poverty just like most other er- most other states you know so Consistently, we saw success through a variety of different schools. So when we asked researchers to evaluate drug-free clubs and then just said, here's the strategy and here's the survey answers, and we stepped back, the the behavioral scientists came to us and said, we were able to align the methodologies of drug-free clubs perfectly with the theory of change. and." I'd never heard of it before. I didn't know what that was. But essentially, there are specific elements that are required in order to achieve a desired behavior. And this is as it's been described to me. I'm not a behavioral scientist at all. So I'm going to do my best to convey what they related to me. So within that theory, the desired behavior, of course, is to stay drug free. In order to achieve that, one of the main components is to address what that person thinks is normal around them. What is what's happening around me that is normal on this topic? And then the other there are other components, including um, how much control do I have over it and some other things. So what they were able to identify is that drug free clubs, the steps that we take perfectly meet the requirements of that theory to Achieve a desired behavior of staying drug free. So that's why they were able to explain when it's implemented according to our standards and, you know, as the way the program is laid out, this is why you are seeing that it's working across the human factor, not just different community factors. So that was really a validating moment for drug free clubs to say, okay, we know for a fact that what we're doing. Is rooted in the way they described it, one of the most well researched and well established theories in behavioral science to say we meet the call to address social norms as well as the other components required to achieve the behavior. So even when our next round of research, the third party researchers that evaluated our outcomes, when they looked at how do we actually address social norms as far as our success numbers, they realized that when we asked the students, how many of your student, how many of your friends do you think have used in the last 12 months? Over time, in the first five years of having the program, we improved their perception. We reduced how many of their friends they think have used marijuana. We reduced how many of their friends do they think are drinking alcohol. And so black and white, there it was in numbers that we were improving that perception of what's normal around me. So it gives me a little bit more courage when I say I can't, because maybe I'm not losing cool points because they probably aren't doing it either.
0: Interesting. And so take us through drug testing you said that you make it fun with you know balloons and music and post-it stotes. um but um kids pee in a cup in front of somebody or use no No, it's not
1: observed not the military (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah no at the so that's like prior to the actual bathroom scenario except for like when i said there's some schools that do like balloons and things like that but that's in the hallway going down to the testing area where there's music and things like that. Um, so for the most part, when they start, they, there is an area where they check in at the table. Then they have an, a bank of computers where they enter in their information. Then there's a photo taking station to be able to put their photo, their photo on their ID. And then at the back of that is the, the testing area in this In those areas, the students go back one at a time. They are given their cup and they go in the restroom by themselves. It's not observed. We're not sending adults into bathrooms with teenagers here. So (laughs) our liability insurance would drop us in a heartbeat. (laughs) So... The student goes in, they put their sample in their cup, and then they leave their cup in the restroom. So, we don't even want them to walk out of the bathroom holding their urine because that, in and of itself, is embarrassing if anybody were to see it. So, really, the only thing that is seen is the student going into the bathroom. So, then the collector goes, they fill out the paperwork that's necessary, they finish up wrapping up the sample and sending it off to the lab if it needs to go. And the student is outside waiting and signing their paperwork as well. So we've had 17 years of making the process very comfortable, very private. And a lot of times there's not a lot of times. Sometimes there's apprehension going into it the first time. And then as soon as the students do it once, they're like, it's no big deal. We've got all girls schools. We've got some of the most sensitive students. We've got a bunch of... A whole section of special needs students that need special factors to consider. And so drug testing in the school environment requires its own considerations that we've been able to perfect over our experience of doing it.
0: Interesting. And um, you had one school, and that's kind of how we met in person. We met uh, through a tour at Millennial Lab, and you were learning about oral fluids. So no more peeing in a cup for those students. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> we can't afford that for all of our students. We can't even afford it for those students. But Millennium Health is the lab that's donating that oral fluid testing to that one particular school. So in that school, we had a challenge because it was one of our larger schools. I believe they have about 1200 students and lot. they're, yeah, they've got about 1200 in the school, not in the membership, but in the school. But they had about it was seven or eight hundred members. So when you think about urine drug screens for that many students, you can collect about a dozen samples per collector per hour. So if you spread that out over eight hundred students, it takes a lot of time. And so they really struggled with some of the logistics once we got to eight hundred students and when I was talking to one of their researchers from Millennium Health, he was interested in the findings from our third-party evaluations. Then he said, well, what are some of the challenges that you guys come up against? And I was expressing my frustration because that school had done such a great job of building their membership up that the actual urine drug screen was the thing that was taking too much time. And he said, what if, Millennium Health would donate oral fluid testing, which means you can have one person conducting the test, 10 people in front of them that just have like this lollipop thing inside of their mouth and they just suck on it and then put it in a test tube vial and then it goes off to the lab. So oral fluid testing has its positives and negatives, but in this case, as far as logistics goes, it really answered the call. But there really is not that I know of an instant test for oral fluid that is reliable. So it has to be a lab-based sample, and we could never afford to have lab analysis of 700 students. So that's why their donation is just it's massive for that school. So we're so impressed with that.
0: And just to give us a cost difference, what is a urine drug test cost and what is an oral fluid drug test cost? The our
1: cups, we have like a Cadillac of drug screen cups. So it's got 12 panels and... Since we test so many students at one time, we discovered the lids that screw on were um, sometimes getting cross-threaded because the collectors are really going fast. So we have ones that snap down and they've got a rubber gasket. So those cups are pricey, um, considered pricey, but through our partnership with our supplier, we only pay around $5 for those. Typically they're in the $17, $18 range. So that's our cup itself for urinalysis. If something needs to go to the lab from there, then we have to pay for the lab sampling and then the medical review officer. So all in all, we average a lot less, I'd say, probably around the $15 mark for our urinalysis. With oral fluid testing, just one of those samples going to the lab is around fifty dollars is my understanding. So it because there isn't an instant saying, yes, there's the possibility of something or no, there's nothing in here. So until the science evolves, you really have to send oral fluid testing to the lab, and we just couldn't afford the lab process for every one of those oral fluid tests. So, there is a significant price difference between, you know, $35, $40 per student when our our entry price is only $45 per student for the whole year. Yeah. So we could never, unless the school wanted to pay a lot more. And in that case, we're fine. <laughs> and,
0: and how often are kids getting uh, drug tested?
1: Everybody gets tested to get into the program. Mm-hmm. And then we do 25% random retesting. After that, so 125% testing over the course of the year. That 25%, what we learned over time is it really does not matter, to be honest with you, how many students you test when you go, because when we have a random test day, we encourage our schools to do a reward the first 10 to make an announcement we're so proud of our drug free clubs kids the first 10 kids who show their id card at the office get a you know ticket to the game or whatever it is so that announcement is what becomes the perception of how often testing happens not necessarily how many students are called down so we do 5% random retesting five times after initials. So if you take into account the, the initial testing plus the randoms that happen after that, it comes out to about monthly. If you take out, nobody wants to test in April-ish because exams are hot and heavy around that time. And then, of course, holidays when when students are out for break at the end of the year and spring break. So it comes out to about monthly that that
0: happens. Yeah. Hey, did you um, did your daughters join drug free clubs? You mentioned uh... Uh, it was not.
1: Yeah, it was not at my at my daughter's school. It's not at the school that my daughter is going to be attending.
0: Yeah. It's
1: funny in Cincinnati. We don't have we're very strong in northern Kentucky and central Ohio and eastern Ohio, northern Ohio and West Virginia. But in Cincinnati, it's not really here and um a lot of that has to do with the fact that we did not have evidence of our effectiveness and cincinnati is a coalition town and coalitions can't do anything unless it's evidence based so without that third party evidence we weren't able to make a move here in cincinnati i'm hoping to change that in the next 2 years yeah um, so gotta, maybe it will end up in my start own. a club yeah i w- i
0: know i would love that
1: <laughs> but that being said it in my household um, participation from parents and or from my child to me was not voluntary. So I started testing my girls in the sixth grade um, just because I wanted them very familiar with the testing process. I knew the first ask would be coming in the next handful of years. And I wanted, as a knee jerk reaction, I want them to be like, come on, you knew my mom tests me. So. <laughs> And I mm-hmm. do, even inside of my house, when I test my girls, I always have like a Dunkin' Donuts gift card, or even if it's just a candy bar, as soon as they're done, I tell them how proud I am and, you know, I love you. And that's why I want to make sure you have this to fall back on so you can deal with that situation. I don't want you to be unprepared
0: because that moment can change your life. So what, what was your um, reaction to it? Maybe different because mom does this for a living, um, but were they like, yeah. oh, you don't trust me. Why do I need to do this?
1: Um, At first, I think that's the first thing because that's the way drug testing is perceived. Mm -hmm. And then once I explain that I need you to have this as a tool that you can use, because if you don't, you tell me how you're going to deal with that situation for sure. How are you going to deal with that situation when you have it? So wouldn't it just be so much easier to say, my mom tests me, I can't. And my daughter, who's a sophomore in college now at University of Tennessee, she, she talks about how many times she used that and it just made it so easy for her to say, you know, I can't, you know, and, and now she hates even being in environments. A lot of times it's unavoidable for it to be present, yeah. but she, she just doesn't even like being around it. So,
0: so do you, I've seen over things, 18? you, still, do you still test her even though she's older? I pay for room and board. So I test her. <laughs> right. And well, the yeah. whole point is, you know, being an adult, um, the definition of that is uh, legal, right? Being 18 or 21. But I mm-hmm. tell people to use a science age, and that's 25. So you may be, right. you know, you could vote and join the military, but your brain is still not done growing till you're 25. So, yeah, I like I like that, <laughs> yeah,
1: and I feel like it's important for the young ones to know that, too. Those young adults that are they are busting their butts to build their futures, right. They're just killing themselves, building their resumes, doing all their extra activities, writing essays, applying for scholarships. They are under so much stress to build those futures. And this one tiny thing can undo it. Undoing instantaneously all. right yes if if not from a health perspective from a reputation perspective from a legal perspective there's so well, many like expenses, how many stories right?
0: one fentanyl and you're done because you thought you were right. using Adderall to study for your board exams and that's happened right um, for right. Know, studying for finals yeah
1: and and I think when it's presented in that way to our young people they see it differently. It really is a threat to everything that they work so hard for. So it's not just, I'm scared of it, I don't want you to do drugs. It's, this can undo everything that you are working so hard for. So that's important for them to know.
0: So I I want to run by some other student or school prevention programs. Um, Governor of California, Governor uh, Newsom, announced that he will have naloxone in all the schools. Um, Mm. What's your reaction?
1: I feel like having it available everywhere, I think it should be just as off as widespread as defibrillators. I mean, you just never know when it's going to be needed and why not? The more accustomed we are to having it nearby us, the less it becomes a controversial thing and the more it becomes like, oh, I've got that. I can help in this situation. It doesn't mean necessarily it's going to be used on a a student. It could be anybody visiting. It could be a parent. It could be a vendor. You never know. You never know. That is a public space where hundreds and thousands of people go in and out. Why wouldn't you have it there to save a life?
0: Nice. Yeah. Well, see, your dad's an EMS person, so that goes along. And the AED analogy is a good analogy, having it where you need to have AEDs where there's older people who may need a defibrillator, and you need to have naloxone where there's people who may overdose. What was strange is to create a government program that has naloxone without the prevention. Okay, so now we have a downstream solution. Wouldn't you at at the same time – not saying naloxone is wrong. It's the right thing. But what about the prevention piece? What about, you know, teaching about drugs and preventing drugs and not just saying, oh, okay, we're going to, people are going to overdose. So let's have naloxone. Um,
1: Dr. Love, you're singing my song. It's (laughs) prevention is one of those things that um, it gets so little attention. And I don't know if it's because, it seems to be this mythical thing that are we actually spending those dollars effectively? It is very hard to prove that prevention measures are working, which is why I was so excited about the research that came out on us. But it's extremely challenging to prove something that didn't happen. So I think that number one, are we just hoping that it works and we're spending all this money on, education that may or may not be sinking in or measures that may or not be working. And then I do feel like this has come up a few times. I think we're still, as a society, a little shell-shocked from some of the other programs in the past that have had a lot of funding put towards them, federally, government-wise, that then later were researched and shown not to work, or maybe in some cases to be a little bit detrimental, that had to do huge pivots. You know, so right. I think it's kind of a double edged sword. But even with a lot of the settlement money that comes from some of the the lawsuits that have happened with the um, heroin epidemic, a lot of times that settlement money, it goes to rehabilitation, which is absolutely necessary. It goes to um, deferral. It goes to a harm reduction. But there is not an equal slice of the pie that goes to preventing it from happening in the first place. It really is overlooked. And, in and we do
0: cases. have examples in the past where this has worked tobacco, the way we got tobacco decreased and not as normalized is through the prevention um, on opioid pills. That's also, that was upstream solution. It wasn't buprenorphine for a solution or treatment solution for people who had prescription opioids, and that's something that we tackled and successfully tackled as a society. Um, so, like you said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. There's it's it's a good it's a good saying because it's because it's true,
1: right? Um, Even economically, if we're if we don't do ounces and pounds, I can tell you one to eighteen is what the science says. So, the right. dollar you spend in prevention sends saves eighteen to twenty three. On the rehab side, so it it makes every bit of sense when we talk about it, but in practice, prevention almost always seems to come last for some reason, and I hope to change that.
0: Yeah, we definitely need more of it. Another uh, idea for schools was uh, uh, dog bringing uh, dogs to sniff for drugs, sniffer fentanyl at school. What do you think?
1: Uh, I have seen some success with that. And I think that administrators, I think it's just as much of a warm and fuzzy for administrators to be able to say it's coming. The drug dogs are coming. We know as an administration, we have them coming. So they can be A, glad if they do confiscate something from going into the building. But then B, it can also help tackle that perception that drugs are all throughout the school. Drugs are everywhere in the school. And in reality, there are a lot of schools that the community is not drug free. And we can't help if the student maybe took a pill before they went to school, or maybe there was something that happened out in the car or whatever. But there are a lot of schools that can say that the school itself does not have drugs in it. But that's not a perception that a lot of people believe. So I do think that having the drug dogs helps with that as well to say we brought them in. They're highly trained. They sniffed everything. We opened all the car doors. They sniffed the cars. You know, I think it helps the schools with their argument to say this isn't a dangerous space for your student.
0: It's also a deterrence. Like I'm not going to bring my drugs to school because there's a dog. Right, it's a good deterrent. Yes. We there are hospitals, emergency departments who have um, dogs. Not not for drugs. I mean, they could be used for drugs, but they're used for violence as a deterrent for violence. Um, uh, and they're also kind of like the therapy dogs because, you know, the yeah. staff likes them and they can pet them. It's not like a police dog where it's like, don't touch the dog, it's working. Um, they yeah. actually use the drugs in, in hospitals and emergency departments uh, and the, the staff pets them and they know the name and they're a deterrent to violence and they can be used in the same way at, at schools for, for to as a deterrent for drugs.
1: Yeah, we actually have one of our schools, um, Adina High School in Ross County, Ohio. That coordinator there, she has, a, I think he's a golden doodle and he's a therapy dog. It's Charlie the therapy dog. He's got his whole like Instagram account. He comes <laughs> to school. The kids love him. He comes to all the events and it really does just, I'm a dog person, not everybody is, but it just brings the spirits up. So that's, that's a little different than the drug sniffing dogs that are more heavy handed. But But, no, but um, that's what
0: what I'm saying is there's some dogs that could do both. Like the the ones, the violence dogs in the emergency department are also um, a a friendly dog. They're not don't touch me dog. They're working they They kind of serve both purposes.
1: Never heard of that. That's really interesting. The violence Uh deterrent dogs. Very interesting.
0: Yeah, it's sad that we need that um yeah but, but
1: great yeah. that we've been able to discover that it works that yeah. it's helpful oh yeah i've know, seen cause... it in
0: action like, like uh patients will want to fight another person you know and get all and then but they'll say get that dog away from me and they don't want to they don't want to argue with the dog <laughs> um final advice to sal Garcia who leads Friday night lives and others who work with youth and prevention what's your advice to to sal and others oh.
1: I think my biggest piece is really just to take a look at what initiatives exist. And in Sal's case with Friday Night Lights, they are doing, they have a very active effort. And when I spoke with him, there really hasn't been one single program that exists that we haven't been able to identify how we work hand in hand because. In those types of situations, Friday Night Lights is one of them, you have students who have come forward for this topic. They're energized for it. They want to do something about it. But we know there's a whole section of the student population that is not participating in that. So those students can become officers of drug-free clubs, design what is going to happen, create the rewards, and be the fun, upbeat kind of students that get to do this and impress the other students with what they're offering. And they can see the drug-free population grow in their own school. These students who are not engaged in the rest of the student body that then suddenly become engaged after two, three years, suddenly you've got a massive body of people that maybe before it was smaller. So if your school already has something, already has a prevention effort, just know that this Drug free clubs of America can be layered on top of it to make it more effective to reach more students. Not necessarily to make it better for those core students, but it will help reach the ones that are not engaged. If your school is doing nothing, why? (laughs) It is such a threatening issue to our future, to our students, to our leadership, everything that the schools work so hard to build. Can be completely stripped away on a Friday or Saturday night. And we are under preparing our young people to deal with that situation when they're surrounded by their friends and they're offered something and they say, I'll oh, just come on. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to find out. They are not prepared for that situation in a lot of cases. So that's where we lose them, is when they don't know what to say. So they just go with the flow. Give them this out give them some kind of, if it's not drug-free clubs, give them something, give them a strategy. It really is not a topic that can afford to be overlooked any longer.
0: Right. I want to say thank you to Sal for your leadership with Friday Night Live. Your program with high school students enhances our local communities by empowering young people as leaders. And thank you, Angie, for sharing the philosophy of drug testing at schools. This is an upstream solution to promoting social norms, engaging parents, Assessing kids and making smart decisions and helping them out. Thank you, Angie.
1: Thank you for the platform. And I just really appreciate your willingness to spread the word about it. Prevention is critical if we're going to beat this thing and protect our kids. So it takes all of these types of, of initiatives to spread the word. So thank you for what you do to make it possible.
0: Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit Isaac1.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I'm your host, Dr. Oneet Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.